It's November 8th, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Photographing a place can seem to be a very easy thing. Take out a camera, place it on a tripod, and you can make an image of an old house, an open field, or a street corner. But if you want to do more than document a place's appearance, and instead you want to create a sense of place not only as it's seen today, but how it might have been perceived over a hundred years ago, now that's a challenge. And that was one of the challenges faced by photographer Stephen Mark who used his camera to explore the world of the Underground Railroad. Using a variety of photographic techniques and approaches, he impresses on the viewers an awareness of the human lives that existed and were changed in these places. With his images, I believe he not only succeeds in giving a voice to these places, but also to the many anonymous men, women, and children, both black and white, who were transformed and helped to transform this country. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Stephen Mark. Well, Stephen, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really excited to have you on the show and, and to talk about your work. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate this opportunity. Looking for, I was looking forward to this. You know, one of the things I, I was looking at your book, um, which is really amazing, but one of the things I was kind of curious about, about is about your beginnings as a photographer. And I know you were going to Pomona College. And you write about the fact that you were studying psychology at the time. You began taking a beginning photo class. And, and you write that, um, that you were introduced to a way of exploring ideas and concepts instead of just isolating the variables to prove something. And I'm wondering what, what you mean by that and what, what photography provided to you that you, you, you didn't think you had otherwise. Ah, okay. Well, for one, I actually did a year of photography in high school and had a wonderful instructor there named Robert Erickson, but didn't take a photography class again until I was a junior at Pomona. And I couldn't get into the classes because I wasn't an upperclassman and I wasn't a declared art major. So, yes, I ended up uh, finishing, I believe, with thesis comps and one course left in psychology. But what I meant by that is that quite often um, when you're doing some type of a scientific experiment, you are eliminating or isolating variables to try to get down to an answer with a specific thing. And what I really appreciate about being an artist was being able to kind of take the ideas and concepts and being able to kind of run with them. So it wasn't a matter of narrowing down to just a single answer to something. Um, but really being able to more holistically sort of explore and try to figure out how to pull some things together. So I really enjoyed really the, the balance. I greatly appreciate the, the psych background that I had, and I feel that in a lot of ways it really has helped inform me as an artist, but there was something that was a little bit freer in terms of as a photographer to um, more rapidly explore the things that were around me. And that's kind of interesting because you, you, you explore history, and so with history, there is no one definitive answer, despite, you know, some people's attempts to, to do that. So photography gives you that, that kind of liberty. Yes. And it's um, and my earlier work was different from this. I mean, so that my, you know, some of my earlier work was more experimental and uh, some of the work is more traditional black and white documentary work. I did a book in 92 called The Black Transatlantic Experience and it's Street Life and Culture in Ghana, Jamaica, England, and the U.S., so it's more traditional, decisive moment, black and white images for the book. 
and uh, it was an incredible experience. But following the publishing, you know, following that book being published, um, I bought a computer and started working with ideas and images on the computer. And there was, you know, I was working with patterns. I was working on another series called Soul Searching. And actually, while that Soul Searching was, you know, um, work was on exhibit at uh, SEPA Gallery in Buffalo back in 2000, was when I was brought in for a residency. And, um, and it was wonderful because I was, you know, sort of the guinea pig. They really kind of started their official residency, I believe, in 2001. But I was brought in in 2000 in conjunction with this exhibition and asked to spend some additional time there. And I asked the director, Lawrence Rose, um, what do you want me to, you know, address the photograph? I was there. And he said, I don't know, just come in, see what you find out so that you can help us, you know, help give us advice on, you know, how to steer and, you know, some of the residents coming in and, you know, after you, following you. And I said, fantastic. I said, well, if there's nothing in particular, I said, there's one thing I'm very interested in. And I said, and that's the Underground Railroad. I said, no, the Detroit and Buffalo are the two major crossing sites going into Canada. And he said, got you covered. And that was an understatement. So I ended up being introduced to many people in the community, gained access to sites. And what I thought would be a short residency ended up turning into a nine-year project. You know, eight years of shooting and then another year to finally kind of pull the book together. And uh, there's sort of so many stories and things along with it. It's you know it's been unbelievable. It's been it's been, it's been a fantastic experience. You know it's it's really interesting with with the book that you're covering. Uh, well, first off, why don't you explain what the Underground Railroad is? Because I, I have a lot of uh, listeners, especially internationally, who may be yeah. unfamiliar with what the Underground Railroad uh, was. So why don't you briefly explain what what that uh, what that was and what it means to um, the history of this country. Okay, well, prior to the Civil War, you had slavery in this country. Um, there were slaves that were escaping, trying to get to points of freedom. And depending upon what time period you were looking at, that dictated which places were possible places for sanctuary. So after the 1850s Fugitive Slave Act, most people know about the movement going north into Canada. But at other times, it might have been going into the southeast down into Florida, so it might have been slaves escaping from the British colonies to get into the Spanish territory. It might have been moving, you know, moving further west and southwest into Texas at one point and then later into Mexico later. Um, but it was really a matter of trying to escape from the plantations and get to a point of freedom. And what I've tried to do in the book is I've tried to hit what most people know as the Underground Railroad and sites going into Canada but also tried to address some of the earlier places that people were going for sanctuary as well, including even cases where you had, um, you know, um, people who were escaping of African descent who were joining up with the Seminole Indians down in Florida. So it's a very, you know, so one thing that I can very candidly say, and that is the more I've learned, the more I know I don't know. Hmm. And there are many people I'm, I'm very grateful to in terms of, you know, the project, um, but I owe a great deal to many of the grassroots as well as academic historians who have really helped me along with this. Now, I've done a great deal of research around it, but they've done a great deal to really kind of um, open up the doors and provide me with insight. And for each one of the sites that I was able to successfully photograph, there were one or more people who were very instrumental in terms of making that possible for me. Yeah. One of the challenges about this is that, you know, you're, you're photographing sites, locations, but the story of the Underground Railroad really isn't merely about locations. It's about the people, you know, the, the slaves, the people that helped them, you know, transition from from the South into, into Canada, both both black and white. You know, mm -hmm. th that's a big challenge to sort of 
tell the story of, of the people when you don't have access to them. And then, so what, yeah. how did you sort of negotiate the challenge of being able to produce photographs that weren't merely documentations of a, of a location or a space? Well, that was a challenge. And, you know, some people really identify, as you said, identified underground railroad by the network of people. And an underground site didn't have to have a hideaway or a root cellar, you know, or a hiding place. You know, quite often it could just be a place where people met up or rendezvoused. Um, and Glenettelli Turner mentions this in her book on the Underground Railroad in Illinois, that there's a site in northern Chicago that was a cemetery. And that cemetery was just a meeting place for people that were moving through that area, trying to get to safety. And so... Um, so on my end, though, I read these really incredible stories. And I think what happened is that from my first experiences in 2000, going to the home of Thomas Root or, you know, Birdie House or the Michigan Street Church, some of the, you know, some of those sites around Buffalo, that it was a really profound experience of going into the places to learn a little bit more about the stories. And then as I read more and more about the Underground Railroad, it was a matter of trying to make those places come alive. Because what I found is that with the really rich stories, I found examples of photographs that looked almost like real estate shot photographs at the front of the houses. And then maybe every seven to ten photograph in some of the books, they would show you somebody opening up an attic portal door or, you know, or, or you know, an entryway somewhere. Um, but it wouldn't even necessarily match up with one of the same places. So going in and out of the sites, I was very intrigued and wanted to try to come up with a, with a form and a structure of how to interpret a site where I would take a viewer in and out of the place that would come closer to, the, to my experience and come closer to starting to tell the narrative about that place. So I looked at the historical material that was available. I looked at the artifacts and documents, um, you know, that were still at the location, as well as looking up place, you know, looking, finding materials that were at, um, you know, other sites and archives as well. But the other thing was looking at some of the contemporary things. So if I gave you an example of, um, you know, of one site, it's the home of John Parker in Ripley, Ohio. And Ripley, Ohio was fine to be one of the big cities on the Ohio River with Cincinnati in this time period. But Parker had been a slave in Alabama, had escaped, was captured, taken back into slavery, and sold to a lady who did day labor for He was able to purchase his freedom later, ended up moving to Cincinnati, but later to Ripley. Now, the thing is, Ripley was a major abolitionist hotbed. And it was also the home of John Parker, who lived on, I mean, who, uh, it was also the home of um, John Rankin, who lived on top of the hill as well. But getting back to Parker, he would talk people into running away over in Kentucky and would provide assistance for them to escape, but he didn't bring people into his own home. However, there was a time, and there is a book called His Promised Land, so people can read about this, but there was a time when two, two men came to his home for assistance, and um, he let them in and said, you know, took him upstairs and said, but we got to get you to the next station at Red Oak. You can't stay here. My place is always under constant surveillance because he was right on the river. And during the time when they were planning, you know, there was a bang at the door and a posse stormed the house and searched from top to bottom. But they didn't find anyone until so they left empty-handed. Parker went back upstairs to see what happened, and it turned out that his two guests had found a ladder, climbed up in the raw rafters, pulled the ladder up behind them, and no one looked up. So it was, you know, so to see a house like that was incredible. So as I built the piece, the major emphasis and thing that I continued to repeat and run as a pattern in the background were indeed those rafters. Now, I was able to photograph that house um, more than once. And so actually in the book, there are two different images there. 
one that was done in 2001 that shows you the inside and outside of the house, but it's during the point when it's um, still under renovation, so it's still very rough. I also photographed it again in 2004, and during 2004, you actually have a woman in period costume walking down the stairway to address a school group. And I couldn't resist, although in the, you know, when I started dealing with the montage, I tried to keep it more factual. The one thing that I did with her, though, is I made her ephemeral, made her ghost-like coming down that stairway. And you see the, you know, you see the kids that are being taken through the site. And, uh, and you see it after the renovation. So for me, it was, it was very interesting to kind of do that sort of as a before and after. So, you know, so for one, on the historical note, knowing the narrative, the raptors were important. But in 2004, it was how this site was being used sort of as a living museum for school groups that were coming through to learn about the place. Yeah. Now, in that second image, you also see the front of the house, and you have a hillside in the back. And on the, in the top of the hillside is a little dimple. And that little dimple on the top of the hillside is the home of John Rankin. And so what was incredible is you have the white underground conductor, John Rankin, on the top of the hill, the black underground conductor, John Parker, right on the edge of the river, right across the street. And they work together. But they also, what the pieces show is that there was a direct sight line between their houses as well. One of the um, interesting things about the, the piece are, are your use of montages. And I'd like you to speak to that um, in terms of your choice to use that rather than going, you know, traditionally documentary in terms of, um, you know, the, the display of the work. Um, yeah. I know you had your roots in documentary work, but what sort of led you to, to do the montages and what, uh, you know, and what guided you to working in this particular style, not only in terms of the illustrations and the photographs that you chose, but the choice to use, use say, the panoramic mode uh, mm, or the okay. panoramic format for these. Yeah. For these yeah. uh, well, there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, some of my earlier work was more experimental. I mean, when I was in grad school, I went to Tyler, Temple University Art School in Philadelphia. And some of my favorite work that I did during that time period were multiple image flash self-portraits. But those self-portraits had bits and pieces of my body passing through each other. And they weren't shot with a normal camera. They were shot with a stereo realist. So they were 3D. And they were actually mounted in Wheatstone stereoscopic viewers. And the Wheatstone stereo viewer is the view viewing system where you have two mirrors at a 90-degree angle. And you have the two photographic plates off to the side. So when you then look, at the, look into the mirrors in the proper way, straight ahead, you see the three-dimensional image, and you would see the, the bits and pieces of my body sort of passing through each other. So I'm mentioning that just to sort of say that, you know, there's been other types of work that I've addressed, and I really look at what are the most effective photographic approaches, or I should say even just visual approaches, for trying to deal with some of the ideas that I have at a given point in time. So in terms of the black transatlantic experience, I felt that the black and white traditional decisive moment approach was the best way. With this, I found that the story was so complex. And as you said, it's not, you know, it's a, it's a humanistic story, and it's really a matter of dealing with it in terms of structures, landscapes, and artifacts to really try to make that come back alive. And that's where the digital provided that as an opportunity. Now, for one, the houses were complex. Um, the spaces were complex. So that in terms of a traditional photograph, I could show you the rafters. I could show you the front of the house. But to try to pull you sort of in and through that space, to kind of show you where the house is situated on the river, and all of those complex things with it, it would be, I would say, difficult to impossible to do in a single photograph. By working with this sort of panoramic sort of across, you know, across two pages, 
as a panorama. It allowed me to show the different aspects to each house to come closer to that narrative. Now, there are two types of images in the book. So there are the underground sites that, act, that are on, on facing pages that go across, you know, go across one page through the gutter and then continue on to the other page. But there are also images that are on just single pages, individual each. So they're a little bit smaller, different dimension. That's just about a 1-3 ratio for those. And those um, are the montages that allow me to not only deal with underground sites, but with the terminus points. It allowed me to describe and show some of the slave quarters in some of the, in some of the southern states. It allowed me to deal with different documents and artifacts and references to not only the Underground Railroad, but allowing me to sort of address the bigger picture of slavery as well. And by intermingling those two types of images, the underground site composites and those, you know, um, and the additional montages really sort of allowed me a, a lot more sort of creative freedom to really address the, you know, the, the range of material that I was actually encountering. Yeah. You know, you produced over 30,000 images for, for this, for this project. And I'd like you to speak about the process of, of, making those images not not just in terms of you know making the actual shots yeah, but in yeah. terms of the logistics of making the opportunities happen yeah. and as, as, as well as you know pl- having an idea of what you wanted to capture even before you walked onto the space yes well one thing is that um like i said i was doing the residency for gallery and one thing that i was asked to do when i got there was to create one or two pieces that would be nine by 26 inch montages that could go above the seats on the city buses and SIPA, I believe, has the oldest ongoing bus exhibition um, program in the, in the country. And so above the seats are where the images go. So they were asking me to do one or two images that would become part of a um, group exhibition. Well, I came in, shot enough material that I came back, and I didn't build one or two. I actually built 25. So they ended up editing my work down to about 18, and I had my own exhibitions going on the buses. But I ended up really liking that format, so I stayed with it and can use that in the book. But what I found is that although I had been in and out of the sites, it was probably a couple of years before that one by four and a half ratio um, format sort of locked into place for me. Now, with the logistics, a couple of things. One is um, the book is done with digital cameras, and I'm very fortunate to be one of the Olympus visionaries. And as the different cameras were coming out, I was, you know, using the different cameras to photograph. Um, so I started off with an Olympus C2000, and, of course, have continued to update that as, uh, as the cameras have come out. For me, that was incredible because it allowed me to photograph, to immediately see what I had shot. And the digital cameras were incredible in terms of their ability to handle some of the very low-light situations and allowed me to deal with available light. It also allowed me to photograph documents in special archives where flashes and tripods are not often allowed. And as a result of gaining access to a couple of those sites, like the Avery Center in Charleston, I was able to later on um, receive a small Mellon Research Fellowship for the Virginia Historic Society and was allowed to come in to photograph some of their materials for a week. So in general, what I found is that with private collectors, archives, and gaining access to the sites, as the project built up more and more momentum, in general, things became easier for me to gain access for, you know, gain access to. And at this point, I'm very candid with people when I contact them. I just tell them, first of all, when I get to your home, 
when I get to your, you know, when I get to your site, when I get to your collection, I'm not going to photograph anything until you've seen my work first. And I tell them that if you're not comfortable with what I'm doing in my work, then you can tell me that, and I won't photograph. And I said, there'll be no hard feelings, but I want you to know what I'm doing first. And so what I found overwhelmingly is that people not only embraced what I was doing and the doors opened, but I also found that, um, for instance, at one site I was photographing, and the archivist was taking me around the site, and they said, but wait a minute, hold it. You use letters and documents in some of your pieces. I remember that. They said, we actually have two letters here, and this is the home of Dr. Lemoyne in Washington, Pennsylvania. And what was incredible is, of the two letters, one of them was an advance letter telling that 27 fugitives were on their way. Now, one of the stories with the house is that 26 people were successfully hidden there. So I have no idea what happened to number 27, but it was incredible. They still had the advance letter for this. Mm. Um, the other letter had to do with a gentleman and his wife who came through, and he was writing back to Dr. Lemoyne, thanking him, and telling him that when he got to Pittsburgh, he met with Dr. Delaney and some of his friends. And he said they were you know, among some of the finest of men. He said, but after he left Pittsburgh, he and his wife um, were then offered assistance by another gentleman who actually turned them in. And, uh, and so it actually says, you know, what happened with the, with the guy and his wife in terms of how long they were in jail, what happened with the court case, et cetera. So here was a letter being written back to, to Dr. Lemoyne warning him about this guy that was further up mm -hmm. along the Underground Railroad that was actually betraying people. And those two letters were incredible. And in the uh, piece that I built of the home of Dr. Lemoyne, both of those letters are, um, you know, are incorporated in that piece. You know, it's, it's, you know, growing up in, in, you know, in this country, I had a cursory idea of what, in, you know, what was involved with the uh, Underground Railroad. And I, and I realized that you probably learned a whole lot um, during the course of the project. But what were some of the things that surprised you um, as, as part of doing this process? Well, I would say that um, there are a lot, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are a lot of things that I learned, a lot of things that I know now that I don't, and still a lot more I can learn on this. Um, but I think one of the things was um, was how expansive um, slavery was in this country and the movement to try to gain freedom. And, you know, one of the things that people forget, and there's several things, but one, people forget about the fact that all 13 original colonies had slavery. So, for instance, uh, the last of the slaves in the state of New York were not released until 1827. Um, but at the same time, you have many of the colonial powers jockeying for territory and how each of them addressed their own slaves and the slaves of other colonies varied. And that's why I mentioned the, you know, the thing in Florida, you know, we're down in the southeast in terms of the Spanish versus the, uh, the British territories. Um, so I'd say that, I'd say just how massive this whole story really was is probably, you know, sort of the big thing. Now, there was a professor in Ohio, and his name was uh, Wilbur Siebert, and I believe his book on the Underground Railroad was, I think, 1898. And in it, he mentions the fact that he had gone through and tried to interview many of the people and conductors connected with the Underground Railroad. But, of course, the Civil War ended in 1865, and I believe, and it was probably about 20 years to 25 years later before he started doing the interviews. Even then, some of the discussions were a little 
tense and some people were not completely opening up about it. But he was able to identify over, well, he was able to identify over 600 sites in just Ohio alone. And so, um, you know, people have asked me, well, have you been to all the places? And I say, absolutely not. And when I tell them that, you know, here's somebody who identified over 600 sites in just Ohio, you know, of course, they're kind of blown away by that. Tell me about the the whole issue of working on, on a personal project for an extended period of time. I think a lot of people, you know, when they think about photography, they think of, you know, of, of snapshots or photojournalism. But when you're driven by uh, something that you're very passionate about, sustaining it over a period of time can be very difficult, you know, on top of, you know, making a living or raising a family. You know, what what do you feel is necessary in order to see a, a project, particularly a project as large as this, through to the through the end? Yeah. Well, fortunately, I'm a professor at Arizona State University, and I'm in the uh, School of Art. And one of the things they expect me to do, and it's part of my contract, is for me to do research. And everybody knows about, you know, the old phrase in terms of publish or perish. Well, uh, my version of it as an artist is show or go. And so the wonderful thing is they want me to do something, but they also don't tell me what it is that I have to do. So it's a matter of me sort of finding the things that I'm very interested in and very passionate about and then trying to figure out how to create work about that. Now, at the Underground Railroad, it was a lot more extensive in terms of what I had to do to learn about history. And I was not a history buff as a kid. And, I, you know, I was curious, but certainly not to the level that I am now. And I think it was a matter of I hadn't hit a, hit a point where the history really kind of started to come alive for me. And that's one of the goals of my work is to try to, you know, to make it come alive and make it more accessible. Now, in terms of the process, um, after going to some of the initial sites and starting to read as much as I could just from that initial time in Buffalo, I was also exposed to books by, you know, like William Still, the underground conductor, Charles Bloxon, the underground railroad historian in, you know, in Philadelphia, and other books. So I'm, you know, reading that material as much as I can. I then came back to Arizona and continued to read and go through material, talk to people, go to lectures, you know, find out whatever I could in terms of, um, you know, videos, television programs, etc., on the Underground Railroad, and in books, of course. And then, after going through that material, started to try to form some kind of a strategy or plan. And so I initially had read quite a bit about Ripley, so I wanted to go to Ripley, so I did. So it was a matter of the process starting to build. Now, what I found is that um, I got enough momentum in, in Buffalo that it was, uh, I shouldn't say easy, but um, I found some very receptive people in terms of my initial investigations. But I also found that as the Freedom Center in Cincinnati was coming closer to opening and the Underground Railroad was getting sort of more popular in terms of national consciousness, that it was getting a little more difficult for me to get into some places. And I actually had researched and was, you know, planning on another trip. And I forgot how many trips it actually took me, but it, and I, and it's over, it was over 30 trips, though. And the whole project took me to over 30 states as well. But I remember that I called in advance to try to gain access to a site. And the woman was very gracious, but she just said, look, I'm sorry. She goes, we've had so many historians knocking on our door to come to our home to look at it, you know, for their research, that it's just become overwhelming. And they said in the last couple of years, I mean, it's just gotten out of hand. They said, we're really sorry, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to tell you no. We're going to have to decline, you know, you the opportunity of coming here. 
And I said, that's okay. I said, I'm really sorry you're going through what you're going through. And I said, but I felt that this was, that this was going to happen. You know, that this, you know, it was kind of coming to this at some point. And I said, I'm really sorry that it's happened to you. And I was trying to find a way to sort of graciously kind of end the conversation because I didn't want her to feel strange about it. I understood too. And so um, she said, but before you hang up, she goes, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? I said, of course, you can ask me anything. And she said, can you name some of the places that you've already photographed? And I said, of course I can. And I just started naming places. And she interrupted and stopped and said, no, no, I said, I'm sorry. I said, what? She goes, she goes, no, I'm sorry. When did you say you were coming? She said, they've allowed you to photograph all those places? And I said, yes. She goes, when did you say you were coming again? <laughs> <laughs> and so it was one of those cases where the momentum of the project had come full circle, you know, for the funnel. And all of a sudden, it just opened wide open. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I met people at the Freedom Center, and some of them were very gracious in terms of, um, you know, giving me assistance and advice, like Carl Westmoreland and Naomi Nelson was there at the time. But I also ended up meeting um, people connected with the National Park Services Network to Freedom. And so actually at this point, um, Passage on the Ground Road, my project is actually a, an officially registered program with the National Park Services Network to Freedom. And so I'm very good friends with and have worked with, um, you know, have worked with the coordinators. Um, and actually the national coordinator, Diane Miller, is uh, actually wrote one of the two essays for the book. And the other essay was written by Keith Griffler, professor at University of Buffalo. But, um, and then my regional coordinator, who I work very heavily with, is Guy Washington up in Oakland. And so, um, you know, through them and through the other people connected to the network, um, that has helped me a great deal in terms of learning and understanding more about the Underground Railroad. Um, but at the same time, it's a project that is so big that I'm invited to places now, and I can't get to all of them. Mm. And I think that there's really a point where there needs to be um, programs set up with photographers, videographers, illustrators, etc., who are working hand-in-hand hand with historians and other disciplines to, um, you know, so that they're actually a very strong visual interpretive units. Um, and I'd love to see this happen in the future. Yeah. One, of the, one of the challenges that I can imagine that you had is, is in producing so many photographs is cataloging, organizing them, and having them, you know, readily accessible to put together these montages or, 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 or whatever you're, you're choosing to do with them. Um, well, the other thing is also getting them home safely, too. Yeah. <laughs> if you mind me putting it that way, because it is, you know, it is a real process. Um, I would travel on the road, but I would be traveling with, of course, more than one camera. Um, but I'd still have to travel lightly. And I also carry um, versions of my work with me, not only to show people what I've done before to gain access to their places, but I also had a smaller little, um, little flip book that I did you know, with my little inkjet printer and double-sided tape, which I refer to as the TSA version. <laughs> and that allowed me to very quickly show my work in an airport to the TSA officers who were checking my bags. And um, I have a few different stories I could tell you about that, but um, I have had my bag stopped in the x-ray machine. I've had all of my ID tickets and everything taken from me while they did full checks on me while my bag was still in the x-ray machine with uh, seven TSA officers staring at it, and, and they would not pull it out until the bomb dog arrived. And then they searched my bag, almost dropped one of my cameras, et cetera. So, um, so I, do take, I do take examples of my work so I can show it as quickly as possible, too. And that kind of helps explain a few things. 
you know, in terms of the type of equipment, the amount of equipment, et cetera, that I'm carrying. Mm. But that's another story, or many other stories. <laughs> um, at the same time, I have to carry not only the camera, but the computers, the backup drives, the chargers, adapters, and everything else. So in the past, when I used to travel with a camera bag and a suitcase, it's now a camera bag, a suitcase, and a duffel bag. And the duffel bag is for my clothes. The suitcase is for all of the electronic material with a few clothes sort of packed around it for, you know, for packing mm. and for insulation. And, um, and what I do is every you know, evening or every time I actually stop somewhere you know, for the night, uh, it's a matter of not only downloading and verifying but making you know, several copies of everything while I'm recharging and everything else. So um, you know, one thing is that if I was traveling traditionally with film, I'd hit a hotel room, I'd uh, throw the film that I'd shot in one bag, keep it separate from the fresh film, and uh, I could relax and, and chill out. Working digitally, though, it's then a matter of two to three hours of the downloading and uh, sort of digital maintenance you know, of the material. Now, the cataloging for me is, uh, is not very complex. It's really a matter of using, um, of actually cataloging things on the basis of which trips in what year, and if I made multiple trips to a place in a year, it might be, you know, putting down the month or something for which particular trip. And it's interesting because I can quite often, you know, remember in my head where something was so that I can actually find it in that chronological order of, um, you know, of the different images. And kind of working from there. You teach um, down in Arizona, and I'm, I'm wondering, in terms of the students that you see, in terms of the stories that they they want to they want to tell, um, do you find that it's often rooted in sort of common sort of cultural things, or is it familial? What, what do you find that most of these students that you're seeing coming through your classes are interested in exploring with with a camera? Well, it, to be honest with you, I mean, it varies. And the level of students that I teach vary as well. So I teach from, you know, from photo to through graduate seminar. And um, this is my 12th year at ASU, but also um, this is my 32nd year teaching on a college-university level. So I actually taught at uh, Columbia College in downtown Chicago for 20 years before coming out here. And Chicago is where I grew up as well. So it really does vary. I mean, there are some students that are, you know, looking at, you know, their own, uh, you know, the events and things around their own lives. And it might be, you know, the, the party scene. It might be, you know, some folks looking at photographing the, uh, you know, the landscape and uh, desert culture and what's happening with the urban sprawl here. So, I mean, it really is very different from, you know, from one student to another. Um, in my case, it's a little different because, of course, I live here, but I'm actually jumping on the plane to photograph in other parts of the country so that when I come back, that's when I actually have... You know, so I'm photographing to build that visual archive, and then once I get back, then it's the intense time for, you know, for the you know for the compositing, as well as for me to consent, you know, start continuing, uh, you know, um, my research as well. So I'm coming in, you know, trying to catalog, come up with my notes and things from the last trip. Then I'm reading new material and I'm trying to plan out what makes sense for the next trip as well. And then starting, you know, then I start making the phone calls and things to try to prepare for that. What I found, by the way, is that um, I really liked, although I made some longer trips and shorter trips, what I started to lock in on is sort of my favorite duration is seven to 10 days for a trip. 
and during a seven to ten day trip, there are probably one to two nights when I wouldn't stay in a motel. Because although I would research places and make my appointments, I would always leave gaps between because I know that there are always things that I would, you know, that would come up on the road that I didn't know about before. There's always somebody that would introduce me to somebody else to take me to another site, et cetera. Mm. So I'd leave as many gaps as I, you know, I'd try to leave a healthy amount of time between sites as well. But even doing that, I would find that here it is, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. I'm saying goodbye to people I've never met before. Had an incredible day. More happened than I could have possibly have imagined. And I have another site I have to photograph the next morning. And that next site is 350 or 400 miles away. And if I am not there by that time, I may not ever gain access to that site again. And even if I did postpone my arrival and I got there later, it would have a domino effect on the rest of the trip and jeopardize me gaining access to some other places. So, um, you know, so that I was, it was quite common for me to just um, get in the car and hit the gas and drive all night, um, take a quick nap somewhere along the way, if not out in front of that person's house, and um, start photographing the next place, the, you know, the, the place next morning. If someone was doing a, a project, maybe not of the scale, but they were doing a sort of project where they're sort of exploring some sort of, um, you know, idea or concept, and they're using a camera to do it. But they're, you know, they may be spending, you know, several days or weeks, you know, um, creating photographs. What is, What are some of the tips you you provide your students, or you would provide to some of the listeners who really want to do, you know, a significant project, either in terms of, um, you know, preparations, in terms of equipment, logistics, research, or and are there a few tips that you think are are indispensable that you learned as a result of doing this? Well, for one, um, it's I would travel with the minimum amount of equipment that you really need, but to really determine what you do need. I would try to go out and try to find some of the things that would be smaller, lighter in weight, more compact to work with, and certainly um, make sure things are high in quality. Now, there are some things where you want some level of redundancy, like I mentioned having more than one camera. Um, when I'm on the road now um, and I make copies, I make sure that um, I have at least three copies of everything. And I have three copies of everything before, you know, of a, of a given card before I actually erase that card. And so, uh, you know, so one thing that I do is that I run um, um, Toast, the, the uh, CD-burning software. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I keep a light version sort of on my travel machine. And going under utilities, you actually have a mode where you can compare any file or any folder. And so I copy over the file, you know, I copy over the compact flash card, and then I go back to that folder and make sure that every single file has copied successfully. There are times when they don't, and what's great is it gives you the different numbers of which ones don't match up. So you're able to go back and re-copy those, and then you can just not do the whole folder again. You can just verify those individual files. So for me, that was one of the things that was, um, you know, really indispensable. Um, I think in, in general, though, it's a matter of trying to keep things as uh, compact as possible so that you have as, as much freedom to kind of work with. Um, I think it's also important that photographers use day packs to something with two straps. I have a lot of friends who are photojournalists that have single-strap camera bags, and over the years, it's really taken a toll on their shoulders, you know, and triggering nerves and things like that. So it's also a matter of, you know, trying to be healthy in terms of how you distribute the weight as well. And unfortunately, if you're traveling in rental cars, you cannot, uh, 
had to be very careful about what you leave in a trunk of a car when you go off in a remote area. So you're going to have to be prepared to have a day pack or something to, to at least be able to carry the most important things with you that you cannot afford to lose. Now, I was in Chicago, and I was actually working on a commission project where I was able to gain access to some, do- to some artifacts and document some of the archives. But the real reason I was there was to make photographs um, for a public art project at Avalon Library on 81st and Stony Island, and then later for a bigger commission project for the 79th Street Dan Ryan Station project. And so I'm at my dad's house, and my dad and I were getting ready to run out someplace to pick up carry-out food. And it was a place where it was difficult to park. So one of us was going to have to stay in the car. The other one was going to run and pick up the food. And just before he left, I said, hold on a minute. And my dad watched what I did. And I reached over and picked up my Rev 35 disc, and I stuck it in my pocket. My dad said, wait a minute. We're just going to get some carry-out food real quickly. We'll be right back. And I said, I know. I said, but when I'm on the road... I always keep one copy, at least one copy, of everything that I've shot on my person. And even at my dad's house in Chicago, one copy had to go with me to get carry-out food. So in case something did happen, at least I had, you know, I had the material on me. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask uh, the photographer to recommend or suggest another photographer that they uh, consider... uh, to con- for our listeners to consider to explore, and it could be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've discovered recently. So who would that be for Well, you for me, it's why? difficult. To, uh, well, I don't mean to uh, sort of bail out on you on this, but um, there are several. And the reason why I say it that way is that there are certain photographers whose work I really, really greatly admire that are more, I would say, more traditional documentary photographers. And you'd have folks, of course, like, uh, you know, Eli Reed and, John Kimmick Javier at University of Iowa. Um, but also you have folks like uh, Jerry Ulsman, who's the master blend printer that taught for years down at University of Florida, and um, his wife Maggie Taylor, who uses the scanner as a camera. And both of them are, I love their work, and uh, very, very gracious people as well. So, I mean, I would, uh, you know, so if I kept going, I mean, I'd have to, pe- you know, pull in people like, you know, Roland Freeman, and, and I'd hate to run the list up too high. But there are a lot of... Um, incredible photographers out there that um that i appreciate for different reasons and many of them have impacted my work in different ways and you know and that's where i could you know you know throw in ralph gibson as well so um you know so there's too long you know i'm not trying to bail on you but i mean there's a there's an extremely long list i mean you know historically of the black photographers you know it'd be you know van der zee and roy de carava and you know, P.H. Polk, et cetera. And so all of those folks have had, uh, in different ways, some kind of an impact, especially as my work is more of a hybrid of what might be seen as traditional photography. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for sharing your time with me and sharing this wonderful book uh, with me. I I really have enjoyed looking through it, and I'm looking forward to being able to read it even more thoroughly. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on and uh, on today and talk with you about this, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to do this again at some point down in the future. And thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post the message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also join the growing community of Candid Frame listeners from all over the world via Flickr, Facebook, and Twitter. 
Links for each of these can be found on the blog page. Till next time, this is Ibarian Esparello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.